0: So what are we we're going to start with follow up? I guess, yeah. So go ahead. Whatever you want to start with, Joe. go ahead. It's your show. Go <laughs> ahead. It's your show. Go ahead. I don't you have the follow up. You're the master of
1: the follow up. Wait a minute, why do I have the follow up? Because you are the master of the email address. Ugh. All right. Did did we get any follow up, Joe? We did. Um, listener Spencer, and this might have been this might have been 2 weeks ago. So this might be tardy follow up. Yeah, well, these uh, we recorded on a Monday last
0: time so it has been almost two weeks since we recorded That's true. yeah right. so and we did we, have feedback that came in before the show was published but you know good point yeah uh, thank you we Joe. couldn't
1: address it thank you yeah so um, we've we have unaddressed follow-up so it's forgivably tardy follow-up I guess or yeah. FTFU I guess Uh. so listener Spencer made an interesting observation reaching all the way back to our US news uh, episode way Ooh. back in the day part of darkness I think Heart it was of darkness, called I think it was called and mm-hmm. um, he uh had an insight, and I think it's uh, accurate, uh, and it goes to one of the statistical foibles of the U.S. News formula. Okay. Uh, Because of the way they calculate uh, bar passage in the students who take the bar in the state where uh, where the most students take the bar, right? Yeah. So they look at that pass rate. Yeah. And what that means is in a state where a new school has opened, and therefore the pass rate for the first time test takers overall is influenced by the creation of this new school it can create a situation where a, an existing school a long existing school uh, can appear to be overperforming it isn't because they've changed it's because the, well, the assumption is for the, bar the assumption is changed. that
0: the new school is a lot worse
1: well and there are instances where the data indicate that, right? So you've got if you've got a new school and the performance uh, bar performance of the st- graduates of that school is yeah. lower, which is often true for brand new schools, right? Uh, then not always, but often, uh, and that creates a statistical artifact. The reason I think it's an interesting point is because it's one point in many that illustrate that the U.S. news formula is highly sensitive to statistical artifacts and foibles. So, yeah. Well, we, we, yeah.
0: as we talked about last time, isn't this just piling on though?
1: <laughs> didn't, no, didn't no, we say there was,
0: that it had no redeeming qualities last time we spoke about it? Well,
1: but, it, but this it, is well, a further we're irredeemable about to, quality. We're, 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 we're two or three months away from getting yet another, uh, uh, one of these things. And yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about it at the time, at least in passing. I so. think
0: this is probably going to be the first, the first, uh, uh, ranking, um, cycle in which our show has been active. Yeah, so, which could change everything. Well, shockwave. Yes, shockwave
1: absolutely shockwave um uh. <laughs> uh. Uh, the uh, so the other piece of follow-up is um and he'll be delighted if he happens to still be listening he might have abandoned us already but <laughs> um but uh listener fan of the show professor nicholas georgikopoulos uh left me uh no yeah knee defender guy he, yes. he wrote that he wrote that i mean that's our interaction
0: with he's of course he's much more than that Indeed, let's be clear. He's much more than that.
1: But he did do a a blog post about in in the middle of our knee defender uh, falterall, and uh, and I can't remember what he argued there. But uh, I think it was that we were all wrong. But that's okay. As many people did, we can Mm -hmm. link to that in the show notes. In any event, yeah. uh, He left me a voicemail editorial note. Who uses voicemail anymore? Uh, It was good. He left me a voice very funny. Uh, saying that uh, he was offering himself up to prevent our recording yet a third consecutive uh, Federal Courts episode. And that given that he could talk about Argentine debt restructuring, that that would be so much more scintillating than another episode of Federal Courts that – who wouldn't want well, that, the funny thing that And the funny thing is, I agree, that would be very <laughs> funny to talk about. I would love to talk about Argentine If stuff. I
0: remember, though, the last when you, the, when you reached out to him yeah, we, in, we in we our talked first about round of correspondence, he was worried, well, you know, I'm not going to... He gonna, demurred. I, I don't, you know, I, talk, I teach boring stuff was basically right. what he was thinking. And then right. he, he, was, he was disabused of these notions by right. our most recent episodes, I guess.
1: Yes, we but proved I say, how boring we could be.
0: Well, I... I to I, some I, people. Yeah.
1: I don't know who these people are, though. Because uh, I've gotten I can re- tell you one of them uh, by name, <laughs> and his name is Nicholas <laughs> yeah. Well, I've gotten, Apparently he was bored out of his mind.
0: I've gotten lots of people saying these have been our best shows.
1: It, it just goes to show you. Yeah,
0: and it's like... This is the great thing about podcasts. If you, you,
1: you're listening to it and you don't like it, delete that episode, listen to the next one. Keep going. Just keep going. Or if you're like Christian, keep going.
0: <laughs> I'm a deleter. <laughs> well, no, I'm a completionist. That does not surprise me, uh, you gotta listen to everyone and uh, uh what was I gonna say
1: the um uh whew, it's one of those days, Joe. it's one of those days. you can't start that already. we've barely uh, begun, and you're making excuses it's not it's not I'm,
0: these are pre excuses ah what well, actually that was a post excuse for the lapse of memory that I just had, but okay. also a also in any a, event, also a pre excuse um but no, I was gonna say I've gotten lots of in person feedback about how these were really good. Really, really good shows. That the we did. federal courts ones. Yeah, in the federal courts one. Yeah, I've so. enjoyed them thoroughly. Um, and it's kicked off. Um, I-, I would say that the shows have been a lightning rod in the federal courts community. They have. <laughs> there is now <laughs> a
1: thunderdome of federal courts grandees. Uh, many <laughs> enter, only one will leave. And that one. We don't know who it's going to be it yet. Is it, it going to be. It won't be me. Strapping Steve Vladek? Is it going to be um, damnable Mike Dorf? Who is it going to be? Who is going to emerge? Do you victorious? have a Marty Lederman?
0: Hmm? Do you have a Marty Lederman kind of wrestling uh, name?
1: I don't. He has he just he was just a note. <laughs> well, he offered comments. His, comp- yeah, this guy his comments writes, were devastating, by this the way, guy writes
0: comments better than like anything I write and publish in a journal. It's so true. Um, <laughs> wait
1: wait a minute, you're not supposed, <laughs> to, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> the point is, uh yeah. Uh no, it's, so, yeah, it's well, a huge issue. And you link, yourself wrote a fantastic I, blog post. I, I which wrote, you will link to in show notes.
0: I wrote a blog post. I will to, link to I, it in show notes. Maybe I will link to all of this stuff in the show notes because uh, basically the topic that we s- talked to Michael Dorf about, which basically you know, do federal courts of appeals bind state courts, and under what circumstances? It's a little bit more precise than that, but right. uh, it was a great show, and Steve Vladek talked a little bit about it with us uh, in the first, in the kind of the opening minutes of his appearance, and then it went on to write a blog post about it in response to Michael Dorf's blog post, uh, and then I wrote something. Um, which was kind of the naive non-federal courts guy's take on the right. uh, on the issue. So, um, and I've just been
1: sitting in the cheap seats eating popcorn.
0: And I would read. So, oh. so, so Michael got in touch with me and told me that he read and you know he read and appreciated the post. Um, he's preparing something. He let me know he's preparing something. Oh boy, <laughs> for next week. By the You're time getting a whooping, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to be taken out to the woodshed. But I invited it. I'll update my post once I'm disabused of my uh, fanciful notions. Right. But um,
1: yeah, super interesting stuff. Your new nickname next week will be red ass, because your ass will be red from the whooping.
0: No, I've got to delete stuff, Joe. Really? <laughs> no, but I think that can <laughs> stay. we can use the word ass, yeah, especially if I not pronounce ass. it. With that <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> especially if I pronounce it with that Chicago land accent, oh, that boy. hard a. Ah. I'm just Joe. I'm just thinking of the children. I know they're not uh, listening. Yeah,
0: no, no one is. <laughs> that's what gives me some. <laughs> right, so so follow up is
1: over. Is that is that it for follow up? I feel like we follow-up. got some other follow up.
0: But you tweets. said I
1: was in control of it. Oh, now you're insisting this. No, no, no. There's, no, no, no. More of there's, it.
0: One, there's one. other bit of of oral argument news. Okay, uh, we Which appe- is, that's not follow up. Mm, so well, there was a tweet. We, we, you and I made a joint appearance live in person last week. We did in Atlanta. Uh, at, um, was that just last week? It seems like longer ago than that. Yeah, we'll ma- we'll mention this again because something may be in the works to do this again next year, but in podcast form.
1: That's right, no, right, right, right.
0: But let's let's not even say more. But we met a lot of uh, great lawyers in Atlanta. Super
1: fun, Tech Law Institute. Um, Oops, was that not supposed to say? No, that?
0: that's fine. You can okay. say that. Yeah, Tech Law Institute, and it, they were offering CLE credit. We gave our little, you know, each of us gave a different spiel. We didn't prepare anything together, but we were on the same panel yeah. and uh, met a lot of great lawyers. And uh, and I did pimp the podcast a little bit. And we got we at did. least a few uh, listeners out of it, including someone who tweeted how great it was to listen to us while she was doing the dishes and other chores. Yay. So that's great. Welcome aboard. All
1: awesome. right. So that's that's all I've got. What else do you Putting have, Putting a lie to your statement that I am in charge of follow-up. Let us proceed. <sighs> I like to point out these little inaccuracies. Yeah.
0: We're not we're not getting along today, are we, Joe?
1: Well,
0: it's a little bit of tension. <laughs> <laughs> it's <a little> bit, <laughs> Dramatic tension is good for the episode. Um <clears throat> Yeah, this, this episode is not getting any younger, though, is it? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, and we have a guest. <laughs> we do have we, have, we have a live, and now, now let me say what and happened. And a highly expert and germane guest. Yeah, and... and <laughs> the this- <eches> issues pressing the nation. <laughs> All right, um, so Joe, t- d- true or false? Oral argument consists of ripped from the headlines legal news weekly. False. Yes, that's false. We, we don't, that's not our specialty. Right? Correct. We don't comb it for the latest stuff. We just find interesting people to talk to, and that's kind of what we do, right? But lately,
1: with the marriage equality episode and with today's episode, we have been focusing a little bit on some fairly current things.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're breaking our own mold a little Thank bit. Thank you, Darcy. Yeah, we're breaking our own mold a little bit. And, um, and and there has been something in the news this week that made me think, I, we need to talk to a doctor. Yes. And luckily, we have one. Yay. One of our colleagues is a doctor. Puzzle Con. Am I saying that right? That is correct. Yeah. It's, it's, say, say it for us. Puzzle Khan. See, this is your chance to go on the record so that anytime people have trouble, and, and Darcy, of course, hey, is trying Darcy. to visit with you, uh, to go on the record with the pronunciation of your name. Like, we, we've had this with several guests now who have had names which are difficult even for people who are not Joe to pronounce correctly. Yeah. Because Joe pronounces any name correct incorrectly. I don't know if you... Virtually yeah. any. I,
2: I noticed that. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs>
0: And, uh, nice. uh and, and so you get to come on the show and say, so how do you pronounce your name? And then yes. you say it and then it's,
1: it's over. I you got can always... name right. That's impressive. It is.
2: Yeah. So That's surprising. I'll, I'll go through common mispronunciations. Oh, good. So I've heard it all. So the correct one is, okay, wait for it. Fossil. But I've heard Basel, which is the most common. I, I say that. Which is fair. And you know, it's really my fault. Is I really nope. correct people? Mm uh but I, I it's all my so fault so what was the I difference the between
1: those two because to me they sounded quite similar it was the length of the first syllable the first syllable is a schwa a schwa it's, so an,
0: it's kind of an uh versus an ah uh, but it's not yeah. a fuzzle it's it's a little bit it's, yeah, it's not fuzzle. no
2: it's not you know <laughs> it could, <it's, laughs> you could do that
0: but the right person could pull that off I yeah, it's, yeah it's fuzzle
2: yeah so some people think oh does it rhyme in puzzle like not exactly it's fa yeah, you know, so now I'm picturing, like, the Sesame Street, the two syllables coming oh, together. Oh, yeah, yeah, they
1: both They're not both schwas.
2: No. Wait, is it? Wait, fuzzle. 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 Uh, it might be. Hmm. It's a shorter
0: yeah. schwa.
1: There's a great t-shirt um, with a schwa on it, and it has, above it, it has the letters B-O-N, so it's bon Schwa instead of bonsoir. Mm. Sort of a French linguistics humor. That's... Maybe it's not a great t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's terrible, in
1: fact. <laughs> little less banter, runs long.
0: That's <laughs> one of our, one of our oh. iTunes reviews, and I think, oh, I hope that person's not listening right now. Uh, so, so, we know how to pronounce your name. No, no. one mispronounces the last yes. name, though. No. Khan! Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Everyone gets that one, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, so y- I mean, you're here because you're awesome, but you're also here because of all of the,
2: uh, because of the Ebola is in the news. Ebola. Yeah, and, you know, in honor of Halloween and this episode Ebola coinciding, I'm wearing my sexy Ebola outfit right now. Um, I was wondering what that was. <laughs> you <laughs> wonder what the costume <laughs> was? It's my sexy Ebola costume. <laughs> I, I thought you were just afraid
0: to touch anything in my house. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Um. So we're gonna, you know, I I thought we'd try to, you know, get through the legal aspects of this. Uh, you'd touch on stuff that you guys thought was you know interesting about it. Um. Because it, it's one of these um, emergency scenarios in the law where stuff just happens and people have to reach legal and policy conclusions very quickly. And it all happens before people have a chance, uh, you know, really to to think about it and give considered views. Um, sure.
2: And um, I, I think a good way to start is just to look at in this area of public health law, we're talking about infectious diseases. You know, how does the law respond to it? And, you know, kind of what authority does, say, the government have yeah, to kind of address you know any kind of outbreaks. And so if we t- we talk about Ebola, um, it's good to kind of start just the basic science background, right? So it's a viral hemorrhagic fever. Um it's contagious, meaning it can be spread from person to person. Um it's spread through certain bodily fluids, uh blood, feces, vomitus. Uh, it's not spread as far as we know uh through airborne particles, which is very important. Because how a disease is spread really dictates the appropriate legal response. So in comparison, if you think of an airborne spread disease, infectious disease like TB, um, you would recommend different um, legal policies and authority to kind of stop the spread of it versus something that's not spread through casual contact, uh, which Ebola does not fall in that category as something spread through casual contact. Is
1: influenza spread through the air? Yes, it is. Like when people sneeze or cough? You knew that. Yeah, you knew that. Uh, well, I, I rather than assume. I mean, I thought it was, but I wasn't sure. I hadn't looked it up, so I thought, why not ask? Yeah. Influ- so influenza, yeah. Uh, TB. Uh, these are these are much more um, easily uh, obtained. Absolutely. Than somebody yeah. else. So you think of what's it- the right word? What more more easily? I think uh, you're thinking unicable? of caught. Yeah, more easily unicable, spread. Yeah.
0: I think you're thinking of caught. Caught. It's more caught. easily caught. More easily caught. Acquired. Yeah. I mean, Acquired. there's different. There you
2: right, the same. I use mean, different synonyms, but it's yeah. If you think of influenza, you think of TB, tuberculosis. You think of SARS. You know, these are very difficult to contain because they can be spread by someone you don't know, haven't touched, because you're just within the same
1: airspace. Now, what a per and and it also it, with those others, it could be the case that the person isn't aware that they have the disease, uh, even when they're in a co- even when they're in a position to pass it on to somebody else. Absolutely. And that's another important
2: concept to bring up is, you know, when are people infectious? Um, and when, when, when are they um, contagious? Uh, so you can be, uh, so there's different infectious disease. So anthrax is an infectious disease, but it's not contagious because it doesn't spread person to person. Mm. The way anthrax spread, if you remember the DC attacks, it was kind of these aerosolized yeah. spores. Right. And so uh, it's infectious because it's an outside organism going inside your body can cause
1: this fatal disease, but it's not spread person to person. Right. So infectiousness and contagiousness are, are words that I think a lot of people use interchangeably. But but you're saying they're not really interchangeable. Exactly. That infectiousness is the degree to which it gets in you and sort of ravages your body, but contagiousness is the degree to which it's communicable person to person.
2: Absolutely yeah. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Infection okay. is anything that's external to you. You know, we, in, in medicine, we call them bugs, right? It could be like bacteria, virus, any kind of bug that comes inside of you and cause infection and cause different effects. Whereas contagious means um, you can spread it, right? You know, think of the term it goes viral. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that means it's, that really it's being spread from person to person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what that means. Yeah. Oh, uh, So anthrax, not contagious, um, but, but highly infectious. But highly infectious. But all these other diseases we're talking about, you know, uh, Ebola, SARS, uh, the flu,
1: uh, they are contagious and infectious. But they vary in the degree to which uh, an an example I feel like people have been mentioning a lot this this past few weeks is like, you know, the difference between measles, say, which seems like it's more contagious. Um, You can get it more easily. Um, Maybe smallpox from way back in the day seems very contagious, right? Easily communicated to other people, um, as well as being highly infectious and, and often fatal. Um, so Ebola it doesn't sound like it's as contagious. Absolutely, yeah, it's not
2: as contagious just because of the means of how it's spread. Now, if it was airborne, then it'd be a different category. Um, and that's the science that tells us it's. And not that's airborne. what the science. So it's really important to go back to the science whenever you're constructing, you know, a public health policy or a legal policy to address you know, the spread of these diseases.
0: Well, you know, friend of the show, and I can say that at this point, Michael Dorf has a post up. I think it was yesterday, but it's, I think it's still at the top of his page today. Well, I'll link to it about, um, whether Ebola is in fact only, um, infectious when, um, or, or contagious, I guess, uh, when you're showing symptoms. That, that's, that's a traditional, that's my, I don't want to say traditional wisdom because I don't know if there's any traditional wisdom about it, but like the, the, the kind of public facing statement of the current science is that uh, people who have been exposed to Ebola but who are not showing symptoms are not, in fact, a risk, contagious, I'm not sure how we parse those things out, uh, even if they have Ebola, until they begin to show symptoms. And as I understand it, and you can work, he's got a post with some, uh, where he's got some charts about viral loads and everything, but there are kind of two dimensions to kind of transmissibility. One is kind of the, uh, uh, the um, what's the right word? It's not uh, density. Oh um you know it it 's the uh um the concentration of of the virus in whatever is being put out there right right and whatever
2: bodily fluid yeah. right
0: and and that 's captured in this idea of a viral load uh and the viral and so he has a little chart of the viral load of Ebola over the course of um uh o- o- over the course of infection and you know so one day the viral loads are you know relatively low and then it kind of shoots up very quickly i think it 's day four or something like that. And the question is, if you don't have a fever one morning, but the viral loads are going to shoot up by the end of the day, um, what's the... Right. If are you, you aren't showing symptoms, are, are you contagious and dangerously contagious uh, during that time or not? Even before
1: you know, bec- even before you've measured that you have a fever. Right,
0: because the other dimension of contagion, and there may be more dimensions, but the other dimension besides just the concentration of... The virus in your body or in the relevant bodily fluids is the degree to which you're spreading those fluids around. So, someone who has a cold or the flu, you know, one of the reasons that's so transmissible is that they're coughing and they're sneezing and they are emitting particles everywhere. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, and and that's a and that's a disease which is transmissible through those particles. And Ebola is more difficult because it's, it doesn't seem that uh, these particles can even or can even carry right. these things. But so, if you look uh, yeah.
2: at the current recommendations, is that you know, once someone is symptomatic, which might be they have a fever, they feel lethargic, right? Which also, by the way, are the same symptoms when someone starts developing a flu uh, would would exhibit. Then you need to kind of rule out where they have Ebola, right? So someone just traveled back from West Africa, they have a fever. That's initial screen. Say, so, okay, do they have Ebola or not? And then they'll do this kind of rapid blood test. Um, and so it's a it's a PCR test where so they amplify the DNA and they say, okay yeah Ebola is causing symptoms, or something else is not and the question is um before that time before you exhibit the symptoms, can you spread the disease and uh our current understanding is is no that you are not really uh contagious until you exhibit symptoms, and a lot of our current especially the F- the c d c and the federal guidelines are based upon that presumption that people who don't exhibit symptoms uh of this disease can't spread it. And here's another concept I want to do. This is the incubation period. So the incubation period is the time bef- when the virus, say, enters your body and the viral load gets kind of big enough that you exhibit symptoms. So you could be infected with Ebola but not exhibit symptoms until the incubation period has passed. And it could be anywhere from, like, they say, I think, 4 to 21 days. And 21 days is the longest. So if you had some kind of exposure someone uh, who had Ebola, so you're known exposure or suspected exposure, and after 21 days, you don't exhibit any any symptoms, then we can say, well, you're clear. That you know, we we're pretty confident you don't have this disease. Um, but there are some reports, and this is where things get complicated, right? you, div- you dig into the arcana of the research involving Ebola. Uh, so there's this 2000, uh, there's a follow-up study in 2001 Lancet on this uh, doctor Gabon. Uh, E.M. Lee where he he identified in the study asymptomatic Ebola patients, meaning patients who had evidence of antibodies against Ebola but never exhibited symptoms. So if you have antibodies, that's your body's way of fighting the disease.
1: Which means at one point they had the virus at one point them. they had it. They must have.
2: They must have. And so the follow-up question is, well, did they just have an old infection, because this is during an outbreak, um, that they just didn't remember the symptoms? And he confirmed that they had the same strain as the current outbreak because it was the same DNA match because, you know, viruses mutate rapidly. Um, Sorry, RNA in this case. And so they said this was the same strain. They could match it up. And they simply did not exhibit symptoms. But then the follow-up question is, okay, if you're asymptomatic and say Ebola was in your system, are you contagious? Right. Right? And it gets back to the point Christian was asking is, Do we trust these recommendations that people don't exhibit symptoms who have been exposed that they really are not contagious?
1: And the hypo that Dorf plays out right is you know there's this a person it is out and about because they don't think they have uh they don't think they're infected. No fever in the morning for the morning check. So this this is a bowling
2: doctor, the hipster Williamsburg bowling doctor in uh, New York, right?
1: Yeah, right, right. He doesn't think he's symptomatic. He goes out and about in his day. Let's say he got hit by a car. And he's lying on the street and he's bleeding in the street because he just got hit by a car and he got cut. And so his blood's there. People might come into contact with it. He hasn't yet had a fever. Is there a moment where he could, where his blood could be sufficiently um, uh, infused with or carrying this viral material that it could infect somebody, but yet he hadn't yet had a fever? Uh, and I, I suppose Dwarf's conclusion is, theoretically, it sounds like it's possible. Uh, or we couldn't rule it out 100%. And you although can even. It doesn't seem like people believe that's the case. But this yeah. is. Well, I mean,
2: scientifically, I mean, medically, it, that does make sense. Because you think about what causes fever. It's not the virus directly, it's your immune system's response to the fever that, sorry, your immune system's response to the infection that causes the fever, right? So a lot of it has to do with um, the inflammatory response within your body. And so if you haven't upregulated that yet in response to this kind of viral load, which it spiked, You'd expect that. So the Ebola in the beginning stages is in places that can't be detected by normal tests. It's in your spleen. It's in your liver. It's once it enters into the bloodstream that we can do these tests. So we know Ebola is there, um, present, before it's detectable. And the question is... Um, but is it in the blood before it's detectable? I mean, is it in the blood before you spike a
0: fever? It is, right? I mean, there's a period where it's in the blood for a few days before you spike a fever, right? Just at low viral loads? Yeah,
2: at low viral loads. And the, que- and the question then becomes... At this low viral loads, where it's in your blood, are you really contagious?
0: Well, and see, this is,
2: so this is like,
0: um, this is where I think it's important for um, for people to realize that, you know, this is where this issue crosses over into a political question. And, I, you know, we're not going to contribute to any fear mongering here. We're just going to try to get it accurate. And uh, so, um, because what's clear is, I I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here. Did you uh, mean
1: policy question?
0: What did I say? Political question? I, yes, because I and think I don't it's think same, people understand uh, the
1: word po- political the way that you do. So I don't think it's a helpful term necessarily. In this it's context. It, it's a question to decide as a polity.
2: I think it's both. Well look, you can get. That. I think it's both a political question and it's also a serious policy question. Yeah. Well,
0: so here is you don't even have to do the car hypo because I think if you have uh, if you have someone who has e- Ebola in the in the bloodstream and you get a blood transfusion from that person. Um I'm pretty confident you would have a high likelihood of coming down with Ebola. Yes, is that's that, correct. Yeah, so the so.
2: recommendations are if you've been to certain areas where Ebola you know, has been in Dubinc, you know that you'd not be allowed to to give blood.
0: Yeah. Seems sensible, right? Yeah. And so what that means is the 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 concept of contagion contains um first of all just some some basic science uh to what degree is the virus being shed and in what concentrations. But it also contains an embedded principle of risk that we're willing to accept. Um, Because someone who is in fact infected with Ebola, uh, but who is not showing symptoms, is very unlikely to pass it on to someone else. That's true. But not... You know there's there's not a null likelihood they, they there is a likelihood or I should say a, a, a possibility. It's not a probability or it's maybe a, non-zero a likelihood. likelihood right right. and the question is with uh, and normally for most diseases, like we don't expect people to stay home because they've been around someone who's had a cold. Or the flu, even, right? I mean, that's because no. it, you know, the, if the worst that will happen is that you're passing along unknowingly uh, and that someone else comes down with the flu and this thing rages on. And yes, people die. I mean, you know, uh, right. we'll, put, we'll put the flu aside for a second because I think it complicates everything. Um, but with with Ebola, the perceived costs at least are very, very high because of the mortality from this disease, at least as observed in Africa. We can maybe talk about the mortality in the United States and what it would likely be here. Um and, and so, you know, that's a question. What risk are we, are we sure. willing to tolerate, even a low risk? Yeah, that's an important
2: yeah. question, is, you know, and one way to think about risk, you know, in, in a simple mathematical form, very simple form, is a probability of harm times the magnitude of the harm. It's a
0: learned hand formula.
2: Exactly, yeah. And so, under, you know, most states have these mandatory reporting laws under the public health statutes, where if, you know, you go to the hospital and a doctor sees that you have, you know, uh, you know, syphilis, gonorrhea, or TB, they report to have the public health authorities. And then that's done at the state level. And then they will send that on to the CDC, the federal authorities. And I'll take a quick sidebar into kind of, you know, the difference between, say, federal authority and state authority in areas of public health. Yeah, I wanted to get into this because I, I got... I, well, go ahead. Go sure. Into this so we can do more detail. Yeah, so yeah. Um, this brings the whole concept of the police power, right? So under the 10th Amendment, the states have powers... Um, under the Constitution, whatever the federal government hasn't taken over, the reserve to the states. And so, under that, the so-called police power includes public safety and welfare. So, traditionally, public health laws and policies have been the province uh, of the states. And so, the states come up with their own rules um, on how to deal with say, infectious diseases, um, you, know, you know, violence, child abuse. They they determine all these laws. Uh, doesn't mean the federal government doesn't have a role, but in terms of infectious disease. Uh, the federal government their ability to quarantine or isolate someone is only when someone is coming into the United
1: States or they're crossing between state borders otherwise this is really within the province of the states so 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 the there's one no more though the frontline actors are going to be you know it's your just like with a fire department it's your it's your local fire department with the police it's your local police the frontline actors here are going to be you know if you if you live in Georgia like we do it's going to be Georgia public health officials exactly and th- that's
2: what and it's important to note that because that's why we're seeing this divergence, right, between what some state governors are advocating should be done to address this risk from Ebola and what President Obama is saying that needs to be done um to address this risk. We see different uh articulations of what the risk is and what the response to it should be. So so calculation of the risk is this you know kind of policy question,
0: which is so embedded with science that most people it, that it's kind of difficult to talk about sensibly in public and um and the, you know, compared to other, you know, there's always the possibility that it's being quite overblown. On the other hand, you don't, you know, you want to stop Ebola in the United States. Right, you don't exactly. want it to but, out But to
2: go, to go back to your earlier point, we said, uh, you know, if someone has a cold or a flu, we're not too concerned with it. And that's true. And you see that reflected in the law. So, you know, the common cold, seasonal flu, they're not listed as mandatory reporting events. Mm. Uh, because you're like, you're very contagious if you have these diseases. But the the magnitude of the harm is very low. You get sick, maybe you miss a day or two of work or school, but it's not fatal. Now, the fatality rate for Ebola is very high, you know, depending upon your access to care. It might be anywhere between 50% to 90%. So, it, you know, the, the magnitude is very high. So that's why it's on this list where we really want to, you know, track it, make sure we stop it and take adequate uh, precautions against it. Um, what so- are the
1: other things that are on typically on that list? But it, man- this is
0: this is the executive order that contains. Is well, that what you're I think talking states about?
1: would have it too, right? State public yeah, health authorities yeah. would have lists of the diseases. St- every that every require state reporting.
2: has their own list of what is a mandatory reporting event, and it, it includes not only infectious diseases. It includes, say, um, evidence of child abuse, and so teachers, um, daycare workers are also mandatory reporters under these public health okay. laws. So I I wanted
0: to let's one one thing people observed I think when um, the first Ebola case was it um, you know uh Thomas Duncan the um visitor from Africa who right. uh, came in with uh, Ebola and, and and it was spread to the two health workers uh, uh there was a there was observation that there maybe was um it wasn't clear who was supposed to do what so it looked like kind of a typical federal state response that was a little bit uncoordinated and there was a lot of kind of early criticism i think some of that criticism was probably overblown but it was uh it was not a, there was not a seamless web of United States public health response to that event, beginning from his very first visit to the emergency room. And, and so I wanted, I, I don't know how much you guys want to do this, but I kind of wanted to delve into, um, what the, um, uh, wh- why is this? Like, why do we have the system where people assume that the states have basically, you know, first line response to, uh, to these events and the, Publ- and the the feds have kind of eked their way into it and i did i am put it in the show notes this is this great article i don't know if you know or by laura donahue at uh georgetown um all about the history of quarantine in the united states compared to britain and it's a it's a really great article so i took a look at it and i, I have some takeaways from it and some thoughts about it and I, I don't know if i'm correct about this or i'm even summarizing it right but it seems like the upshot is that because um we didn't have a need for quarantine during the very period when the federal government the machinery of federal government really got going. this is during the you know the administrative expansion the New Deal era. Um, but the last big kind of quarantine level event was the Spanish flu and after that all the problems were much more tractable because of antibiotics and, and vaccines. And so the need for a um, federal machinery to address big problems like this just never came around. And so when we look back at the authorities now to figure out who should do what, we're reading these um, barely post-Civil War um, uh, statutes. I mean, a lot of these state statutes are very, very old. And then the cases interpreting the constitutionality. There are some more recent ones, but the cases interpreting the constitutionality of these statutes, interpreting like the federal government's uh, the appropriateness of the federal government's uh, um, um, you know um, interventions in this area, and kind of people's speeches about whether to expand uh, quarantine authority. All that's kind of old.
2: Right? Yeah, I think this, that's a fair critique that uh, this whole kind of divide that you know public health should be it's within the states, province, not the federal governments is a little bit anachronistic. So you think back to one of the seminal public health law cases. It was 1905, you know, Jacobson uh, versus State of Massachusetts, the same year as the Lochner case, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of bookend uh, cases then in that term. is that, that involves, say, a mandatory uh, vaccination scheme for smallpox, where the uh, the person challenged it, saying that the vaccine is untested, it was unsafe. Uh, and the court, the Supreme Court ruled that, well, you know, the state's public health authority is very broad. It included the power to... To determine that everyone needed to be vaccinated for for smallpox. And back then, you're right, historically, if someone came in to, say, the port of Boston, you know, the ship that had smallpox, um, it was a very kind of localized event, right? There wasn't really a a federal concern that an outbreak of smallpox in Boston or Cambridge would spread throughout the entire nation. That's not true anymore, right? Think about how mobile people are. Think about globalization. Uh, you You know, Duncan came from Liberia, to Houston. One of the nurses got infected was then in Cleveland. I think there's fair arguments the- that, you know, um, a lot of these traditional, you know, police power issues are really federal in nature. And we saw the same thing during Katrina, right? The issue of who had authority to respond. Was it the federal government? Was it the state of Louisiana? Was it the mayor of New Orleans? Who was in charge and who was responsible for that response to Hurricane Katrina, which I'd argue was absolutely a national federal problem, not just a local one. Well, there was. Uh- you know, the, when I was reading this history, what I was struck by
0: is just the extent and frequency with which there were regional quarantines, cordons, uh, um, uh, isolation, uh, and, and just because disease was everywhere, it seems like. Now, of course, I'm reading a history, and if you read a history of disease, it's like, gosh, there's a lot of disease, because it, it keeps coming <laughs> right, up. Right, because that's um, what it's focused on. But, about. you know, yeah. it, there was an awful lot of it, and I think, it, you know, one of the things that came up was like, uh, I don't remember exactly when it is now, I don't have it in front of me, but... Um, uh, I think shortly after the um, Constitution, uh, Philadelphia was awash in yellow fever. I think is that right? And and th- so there were the, the one thing Congress did was to say that the president could convene the Congress outside of the federal capital if, if, in case of right. disease. And and so there was proceed, and that's when you get the first statutes, as I understand it, saying that there can be a role for the federal government to help states, but not to displace them. Uh, at least at that early stage, and it wasn't until after the Civil War that you start to get courts saying, well, the federal government had—there there isn't a statute saying that the federal government should take over quarantine, and—but uh, the—so that is left for the states, Tenth Amendment. States can do this. It's constitutional. It doesn't violate constitutional rights. The federal government could preempt this, though, and they start to say that very early on. Right. They could preempt it if they come in here, and and and, and that process, as I understand it, happened— when the states started to get out of the quarantine business, when they couldn't afford to pay all of the kind of the Civil War debts and everything, and they started selling off their quarantine facilities, like, one by one to the federal government, and slowly over time, the federal government began to own all the quarantine facilities, even though the states still had all this authority. Right. So, So, I don't know. Yeah. yeah,
2: So, the federal government can take control if the states fail to act. So, inaction is also another cause for the federal government to kind of exercise, you know, police power. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So, if there's Someone's crossing state borders or coming into the U.S. from international borders. Or if states don't act in the scenario that, that you describe, uh, the federal government has that power. But the federal government has been very careful about using that power, even though it has it. And you, I mean, like I said, you saw that you know, directly during Hurricane Katrina, right? The, the the rationale being that the government didn't want to overstep its boundaries. So there is this concern for federalism, whether that was an excuse for inaction um, is, I think is also kind of fair to ask.
0: Yeah. In case. And there was, so as I understand it, the, there's the federal health services act of 1944 is the one that gives the authority, the one you've been talking about, like if you cross state borders, you know, and it, and it, and it refers to a list that the president keeps through executive order of diseases that are subject to quarantine and isolation and it keeps getting updated. And I think the most recent one clearly covers Ebola and maybe other hemorrhagic fevers. Yes. Um, and, and, uh, um, is we're talking about like the difference between quarantine and isolation Absolutely, and, and, and the, cordons that, and sanitary yeah. cordons? Yeah,
2: that, that drives me crazy because I, I even read the New York Times where they're using the term quarantine incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, so isolation and quarantine are both about social distancing where you kind of separate people from society so they can't spread the disease to someone else. Isolation is when someone is known to have the disease and then you put them in some kind of isolation unit, might be in the hospital, might be isolating them at home quarantine is when you're socially distancing someone with a known exposure or suspected exposure so quarantines for people who d- don't exhibit symptoms of disease we don't know if they have the disease but it's very likely that they do yeah you can in-
0: individual quarantine i mean they quarantine pets and things when you go to so other the guy at somewhere.
1: bellevue is isolated he? because he's in a special unit being treated because he has the disease absolutely and uh uh, the, uh, Casey Hickox, Hickox, the the yeah. one in Maine is being quarantined, attempted to be well, in attemp- right. Yeah. The governor of Maine thinks he's quarantining her. Right, <laughs> right. there's some dispute about that. But um, but there's an, actually, from what I understand from news reports, there's no indication that she has the disease. She simply was exposed to people who have it. Exactly. exactly. We just don't have a so lot. She's of, not being isolated. Yeah,
0: and, and there's and she's outraged by it. And a lot of people are. And and we can talk about that case in particular in a minute. But um, we don't have a lot of recent experience with quarantine. Uh, maybe with isolation, but even there, we don't have a lot of experience with isolation. We don't have a lot of kind of public experience with quarantine, and it used to be much, much more common. And indeed, regional quarantines and these sanitary cordons, where they would just, there would be like, you know, a ring of military people around a geographic area saying nobody comes in or out. Right. Um, right. That's unheard of in, in in our time, at least, in the right. United States. Um,
2: you know, one prominent example is in San Francisco, uh, when you know, the bubonic plague was still yeah. prevalent. Uh, there's two cases there, uh the Juho case and the Wang Wai case where uh this the sanitary cordon was just around Chinatown. Right. The theory was that only Chinese people were susceptible to bubonic plague and they're the ones who are spreading it around to everyone. And the court, you know, um surprisingly, you know, this is in the term of the year, it was the early nineteen hundreds, yeah. Uh recognized that this is clearly discriminatory and was um animated by Um, racial bias against the Chinese and not by good science that there's no reason to suspect that only the Chinese are susceptible to bubonic plague and needed uh, one case had to do with kind of mandatory uh, vaccination. The other had to do with this cordon of just Chinatown. In fact, that it wasn't protective of the people who didn't have the disease because then you're just going to confine them to this closed space where you're in guarantee if one or two people had it, it would spread rapidly in this cordoned off area. So we haven't seen that in the U S since that time. But we have seen it internationally right it, yeah. so that's what happened in sierra leone where the government said we're going to have this three-day quarantine uh for the areas most uh directly affected by the disease and then go house to house to see where people might have cases that they weren't reporting and not let them go to other areas so uh we haven't seen the u.s but we have seen it uh, internationally and they tried a longer one there
0: too and i think it was a disaster from what from what i read i think when they tried a 21-day quarantine i think it was sarah Leone. I've, I've got a well, paper saying, you're saying up. recently yeah recently oh yeah recently yeah. so
2: there's yeah so there's a 21-day quarantine um in liberia in certain neighborhoods i think they
0: broke it off or something
2: I don't, they broke yeah. it off and and, and the and the problem there is that they didn't provide people with basic necessities of life like right food you know, making sure they had access to food and you know anything else that they might need so Obviously if you don't provide those basics, people will try to break the you know the
0: quarantine. Yeah, it won't be effective and then there's a yeah. question about whether it's it's legal under whatever legal regime you want to think of. I, I actually one of the uh, things that in the Donahue paper was an example in in I think it was Hawaii, maybe near Honolulu, where there was I don't remember what the disease was, but they not only did they cordon the place off, they actually burned an entire block down to the ground <laughs> that was facing the trade winds. I mean that I I, I think we just don't, you know, in our day and age, we don't have a lot of experience with kind of bring out your dead style diseases. You don't
1: need, you don't need to, when you understand better, I'm assuming this is why, I'm not a health person, but I I assume that when you understand better um, exactly what causes the problem and how to treat the problem, you do what you, you do what now, what you would have done then if you had known then. Right. If you'd known then, you would have focused your efforts on the things that actually cause the problem. And you wouldn't focus it. Bit, but when you don't know what precisely what causes it, you have to take more sweeping measures. Exactly. Whereas so you- now that we know, you don't have to be as sweeping because you have better information. Each At each point, what the points have in common is, each point, people are trying to do the best based on what they know.
0: Based on what they know, and they're making a risk calculation. And then they're making what you insist on calling a policy decision i call it a political decision but same thing right they're making a judgment about about what's good in terms of the risk as they perceive it
2: right right? i mean i agree as as we know more information the science tells us more we can use less restrictive uh measures so the term quarantine means 40 days right literally in latin and is developed in in venice when venice was a city-state they had a lot of ships coming from all around the world and trade and at the time you know the black death the plague was going throughout europe so if they had a ship where people were sick, they'd keep it out at port. They'd quarantine it. Um, so once they had better information that okay, 40 days um, is overbroad, maybe only to have them out at sea for 20 days. You know they kind of you know lessened kind of the restrictions. Uh, but that's where this notion of kind of social distancing comes from. And with Ebola, you know the more we know about it, how it spread, you know what are good signs and symptoms if someone's asymptomatic without symptoms are they infectious or not have a rapid test for it to rule it out we'll see kind of less restrictive measures so
1: with, with we the case, should if we we're basing we it on the science right? we should if it's not just raw fear right where people aren't paying attention to the things that we know and and the things that we don't because that's yeah. helpful too in making your your yeah. uh, your responsive calculus um but the people we should adjust based on new information
2: right so with the case of Casey Hickox right so this first she first came in uh, she, she was a doctor's at borders a nurse was treating patients in West Africa so we know that she was likely exposed to people with Ebola uh, was she that she had disease we don't know so the question is was it reasonable to quarantine her once she exhibited the symptoms which was uh, a low grade fever I'd argue yes because you had you know a risk factor treating patients in West Africa and you had a symptom that is constant with Ebola a fever now once the fever is gone and they did a blood test. After exhibited symptoms, they ruled it out. Um, then the question becomes: Is it reasonable to continue on with uh, the quarantine? I, I like to hear. You, I mean, you're two bright gentlemen. What, what are your thoughts on, on this case? Um, I don't know all the
0: details about it, but I, but you, I, the the thing you've got to think about, I, I think, is uh, the. You know, you know the cost—the cost to people in her kind of position, um, both the human cost to people who are subject to three-week quarantines, which is not nothing. Three weeks is a long time. Right. Um, so the, the human cost to those people, which can be ameliorated if you insist on, you know, certain—you know—you can't keep them in a tent without communications. You know, you can't do things which aren't rational in the circumstances. You have to provide them uh, with, and, and you know, in home in home quarantine would seem to be. Um, a reasonable measure, uh, but um, uh, if if you decide on it, but you know the cost of doing that is you know you're going to get fewer people going over to volunteer. You're going to get fewer health workers to uh, to volunteer, both to go to Africa and to treat Ebola wherever else it crops up, or like diseases wherever it, it crops up, um, because quarantine is is profoundly unpleasant and. You know, how do you weigh that? How do you how do you weigh that cost? Like, I don't know how many, first of all, I don't know how many workers in, engage in that sort of thing. I don't know how, what their attitudes are toward potential quarantine. I don't know how many of them would be deterred from doing what they're doing because of, of quarantine. And on, on you know, on, on the other side, I still don't feel like I have a really good handle on the risks of her being out in public. It's, I think at this point it's vanishingly small. You know, I would right. I would have a over for dinner, and I wouldn't think anything. Of. I might think no. I would let me let me be honest. I might think something of it,
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> right.
0: but I but I wouldn't I wouldn't unduly worry about that because I I think even though it, you know as as uh, Michael Dorf pointed out it's 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 possible that that she could spread the disease even though. Um, she had a, a negative test for fever in the morning, and that you know things it's could possible,
1: happen, but not likely. It's not
0: very likely. Yeah. And I mean, it,
1: once the once the initial fever reading passes, right? And I'm just going on news reports that I've read, and maybe I don't have, maybe I didn't read an accurate news report. But with that caveat, it, it, when the fever it quickly disappears, um, and the blood test shows that she isn't there, she doesn't have the Ebola virus in her blood, so far as we can tell, right? Then you're back to the single risk factor of she was working in an area of where course. she was exposed mm-hmm. to the of virus, course. Right, right? Right. That's the that and that is and not, that is not zero, and she's still right. within
2: the incubation period of 21 days, right? Right.
1: But if you're not, if you unless you're prepared, I mean, I think okay. So she was exposed to people who have the disease. So, for example, are a bunch of people who work at Bellevue Hospital, yeah. Um, and we're not following them home to keep them at home. Why are we insisting that she be kept or at Emory Hospital here here in Atlanta or at Emory Hospital here so so the, so I one of the things I sense in all this is a disconnect between the way we treat her on return from Africa and the way we treat other people who are analogous to her but they're treating people here in the United States Let's, so I want to yeah. hear more about that yeah, so, so, I want to so, hear why is there is there a sort of a disparate treatment there because that makes me wonder is there something that isn't based on the science going on Or is it? Or is that scientifically explicable? Putting that entirely to one side, though, just this one risk factor. Given all the other things we have available, take your temperature twice a day, report to the authorities, which these health workers like Spencer are seem really good at doing. Like he he called he called people right right away, right? So they're trained; they know what they're doing. And given that that's such a much less intrusive on her and people like her. And therefore, makes them more willing to go and treat people in Africa, which is what we very much need to do um, to end the outbreak. Then I don't, I don't get the argument for even requiring her to stay in her own house. I, I just don't understand the the force of the argument.
2: Right, and what you're saying kind of broadly tracks what President Obama and the CDC guidelines' most recent iteration uh, track, where they have this kind of four tiered classifications of, say, high risk some risk, low risk, and no risk of uh, of being exposed to Ebola. And so a high risk would be people like her who did you know, um, treat patients and then have some symptoms. But once you rule out that the symptoms are caused by Ebola, it seems you can put them in a lower risk category. Right. So for the yeah. high risk, you would want to do monitoring. You would want to have, say, a voluntary quarantine where they stay at home, not in the onerous conditions she was put at in New Jersey, which I think was appalling. Um, And, you know, if someone has some risk where uh, they're not exhibiting symptoms, but they might have been exposed to people who had the disease, then you could have, you know, what we have for healthcare workers now, where you take your temperature twice a day, you monitor yourself for any symptoms, and at the first sign of any symptom, go report yourself to get treated and to the public health authorities. To me, that makes a lot of sense, because the danger of dissuading people from you know, treating this disease overseas is that it will continue to spread, and I, and I think that's where the bond administration really deserves a lot of criticism because there's a lot of people in the international public health arena said that they should have been a lot more aggressive when this first cropped up, which they had been in the past It previous Ebola outbreaks for whatever reason. Rec- early on, this early is, on, yeah. yeah, this is going the first index case is like December of 2013 in Guinea, and from there it spread to Sierra Leone, Liberia, and there was this five months lead up, then it spread to Nigeria, which is. Uh, really scary because of the density of the population there, and you know the amount of international travelers, this should have been addressed five months prior uh but now the cat's out of the bag you know they need they really do need this robust kind of response to it with these international healthcare workers with the experience of treating it to go in there where which are essentially failed states. You think about Sierra Leone liberia um recent civil wars, really poorly developed public health infrastructure. That's why this spread in those countries. It's no, it's no coincidence where, you know, other countries, which, you know, not wealthy countries like Uganda and Nigeria, they were able to, you know, stop the spread because they have intact structures in their society. Well,
0: so I, I don't know. I didn't look up New Jersey law or, or Maine law. I should have. An, but I, I know that there's, uh, after the anthrax attacks, a lot of states, as I understand it, went back and, and looked at their... Public health statutes found out that they made references to the vapors and <laughs> consumption. <and laughs> right. Used all kind, you know, use all, of terms. Yeah, they, all, all of them were written before the germ theory was accepted. You know, there was a, there was a real disconnect. And, and so there was this um, model state emergency health powers act, right? Um, this uh, is a guy at
1: Georgetown, Austin or something like uh, that. Larry Gostin. Larry Gostin at Georgetown who creates this model in yeah. 2001. And yeah. a lot
0: of states adopt parts of it or all There's, of it. And um, I don't know how many, I don't know if what to what extent it was adopted in New Jersey or Maine, but, but it requires that quarantine or isolation be imposed only if it's the least restrictive alternative. So you're using that kind of constitutional language of strict scrutiny almost. But um, so again, you know, that, that gives some guidance to let you know, Hey, only do this if you can't think of another way to solve, to solve the problem. Um, but I don't know that it really answers kind of the, the, the policy question of, of of what you do with returning aid workers. So, for example, in this case, you know, you asked what what we thought, and and I gave you the answer to kind of—I uh, gave you a, a way I was kind of thinking about what they're doing now. But, you know, when she gets off the plane, she's coming from Africa, having treated Ebola patients, and has a fever, it's perfectly reasonable, it seems to me, to isolate that person immediately uh, and do the tests and do, do all the things which were right. done. I don't know how—I don't know if they were done fast enough. I don't know if they were done well enough. Uh, I don't know anything about how long she was in the tent, either before or after all of that occurred. And my understanding is she was there after the tests occurred and she was ruled out. So I'm not speaking to that at all. But that part, at least, was, uh, you know, at least an isolation, I mean, is not only, like, I think it would be outrageous if it didn't happen.
2: Right. And so this kind of, this least restrictive uh, limitation on the use of the state police power to take away someone's liberty, which is what you're doing when you're socially isolating them or quarantining them. Um, that's been in there even before this Model State Act that was uh, promulgated by Larry Gossin. And I can get into more detail about it because I actually wrote an article about that. Uh, Harvard Law and Policy Review in 2009. But uh, there's another we'll case. Yeah, we'll there's another case um, called JSV Green. Mm-hmm. About a homeless guy in, in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. Who had uh, HIV, but also had uh, multi-drug resistance TB, which is very dangerous because, you know, there's, you have limited means of, of treating the TB. And so he was non-compliant with his treatment regimen, meaning he was not taking the drugs that he was required to. And if you don't fulfill your full course of drugs, which takes six weeks, six months, um, you're guaranteeing that you're going to get drug-resistant bugs, which is dangerous to you know the whole public. So the question was: Should he have been isolated within the hospital? Uh, because he wasn't complying with his TV regimen. And there the court went through the whole analysis. You know, what due process is required when the state takes away someone's liberty, not for some criminal action that occurred. He didn't commit any crime, but, you know, he was still a danger to the public by not following, you know, these kind of proper guidelines. And they said, okay, well, you had to give notice. Here's why, you know, the government's going to, you know, isolate quarantine quarantine. You have a right to a trial. With legal yeah. representation, because even though it's not a criminal trial, your liberty is being taken away. Um and, and, you, can and you can challenge the reasons. And you can challenge the reasons, you can challenge the science. Like so for a lot of people who do have say active TB, which is contagious, it's not automatic that the state will say, Okay, we're gonna put you in this isolation ward in some kind of state institution. Because you can say, you know what, we're gonna take precautions to isolate ourselves within our house, you know, and not go outside, always wear a mask. And if you demonstrate that, you know, you are a responsible person, even with this active, you know, contagious disease, the state, you know, often will respect that. They have discretion. Uh, But in his case, he didn't have a home where he could self-isolate himself. And he had demonstrated that he was not complying with his treatment regimen, which made it more likely they might spread this disease. So the court said, you know, the least restrictive alternative here is actually to put you in this hospital room, which was locked so you couldn't walk away. But the state still has a burden to justify the continuing isolation. So the state, so the court said in that case, um, the state would have to prove after, say, three weeks that he still was infectious. So you had to give some kind of, you know, sputum sample to show that you no longer had the active. Oh, so TV. there's an
1: ongoing, they have to come back and reevaluate. And, right. So you I don't mean, just, so you don't fall into a black hole. Right. And, yeah. and that all sounds to me to be because, principally because it's based in the, the, Good information that we have about how the disease operates and the implications of refusing to take medication. I'm like hell to the yes, lock him in that room and make him take. <laughs> well, his it's pills. not just
0: that. There's that the, the 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 sojourn of Andrew Speaker is well known. Oh, Andrew the, Speaker, yes, the guy University who, of
2: Georgia law grad. Is that right? yeah that is correct. Yeah, he's
0: he got in a world of trouble, didn't he? Yeah, because uh, he had. um It turned out, I guess, multiple resistant uh TB, and they thought it was this like extremely resistant yeah. TB, but it turned out not to be. But they didn't know that at the time. They told him not to travel. He got on a plane to go overseas. Uh, he booked his tickets early so he could get away early. Went over there. They told him, to go, to the, um, go, go to the health authorities in Rome. Don't travel anymore. And then he got on a plane, I think, to Prague and then to Canada and then drove back in the United States. He was in a world of trouble. Right. Um, and
1: but justifiably. I think he was subject just, to tort suits, actually, I mean, in Canada. That's horrible.
2: And he actually was uh, subject to the federal isolation uh, so they they shipped him over to a hospital uh, in Denver. Denver, yeah. Denver yeah. Jewish Hospital, which specializes in kind of TB treatment.
1: But you know you contrast that with um, the health workers who ha- who who have been taking their temperature, who have been alerting authorities uh, when they become symptomatic, uh, who are complying with proportionate response, and who are objecting to what could be. And and we need to have an adjudication to find out. But what could be disproportionate response? I think that's a world away from a person who has drug resistant TB will not take any medications and is insisting that they should be able to wander around on the L in Chicago. I mean that makes no sense. I agree, right? and
2: that's a complete different case. With the case of Andrew Speaker, he clearly was not following uh, directions not to travel because he had this diagnosis of active TB, multi drug resistant. Uh, even though it's not extremely dark resistant, it's still something you don't want they to do. They still other could people.
0: have restricted its movements Absol- based on that. Absolutely,
2: and, yeah. absolutely. Versus someone, you know, like uh this doctor's out uh, border person in New York, who right away said, you know, as soon as I I recognize I'm posing some danger to the public, took himself to authority, got treated. Yeah, so we don't really need this kind of draconian response, which I, I think was what you're saying, Joe, and I absolutely agree. And I think you know President Obama is trying to reflect that with this policy that we can control this using voluntary compliance rather than turning people against the state. Well, and that's this- the question: Can we? Because and, and it may well be because
0: Ebola is very hard to transmit because it can be treated relatively well in the United States. It looks like um, there's no guarantee that a pandemic flu would be as easy to can. To control, in fact, it would be much harder to control. There's no question; it'd be much harder to control. And uh, and there may be other diseases like SARS. Who knows what's going to come uh, down the pike that that we that have either become antibiotic resistant or we don't have good viral medications for or any inoculation for. Um, the thing is that we don't have this experience. And I think there. Are, what's interesting about it for kind of legal scholars is in thinking about like how to get on top of this problem is to reflect on how we got here, and and how we got here is. To have an entire, again, to have almost an, an, maybe two or three generations with zero experience with this kind of problem, at a time when other social problems are being funneled into administrative agencies and are are, are receiving kind of national coordination, right? And it feels like we're almost catching up now. So, so the
1: here you're referring to now is this sort of state focused federalist approach to w- the issue,
0: right? I mean, you know, what you look at our body of law. And, and ask you, like, where, why that? Like, you know, if you were to write on a clean slate, you probably wouldn't do it this way. So why do we have that? How do we get from well, there? yeah,
1: because, you know, these these pathogens don't respect borders. I mean, they don't, like, oh, I'm a virus, so I'm going to stop here at the border of New Jersey and New York. Yeah, and that I mean, was understood. <laughs> they don't know how
0: to do that. Right. So, that was uh, understood early on, but the way that you controlled them was local, right? You would, even if you did a cordon around an area, it was, a you know, how do you control any kind of yellow fever or any other uh, communicable disease? You tell people to stay at home. You tell them to bring out their dead. You tell them you, you, they, there were regulations in uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony, in Connecticut, where you have to like hang like red flags outside of your house oh. if you have the infection. It's, right. uh, I mean, these are very aggressive, but very, very local, uh, uh, regulations. And, you know, the idea of tracking like that would be impossible anyway. So if there's a disease, you handle it, you know, you, you handle it where you are. So <laughs> there, there, there's this, so there's this history. Uh, there, there's state regulation base uh, which wasn't updated for a long time. There was uh, uh, at a time when federal-state relations were such that you know states are protected jealously in the things that they do, and there's suspicion about the federal government getting involved. Uh there, is, there are kind of commerce clause and uh, dormant commerce clause concerns. So how far does Uh, The federal commerce power go. And then to what extent can the states actually engage in quarantine and cordons and not run up against the so-called dormant commerce clause? Right. So there, there are these kinds of federal state issues running through it. Then, if you want to do one of these things, the, the other, and we've been, I'm just kind of summarizing some of what we've been talking right. about. Uh, if you want to do one of these things, uh, you're doing something very aggressive and liberty depriving to a human being that we wouldn't normally conceive of, right? I mean, uh, the, the closest thing and the cases which have been um, drawn as analogies to this are the civil commitment cases for, you know, dangerous mental illness or sexual predation. In, involuntary commitment. Involuntary, right. Uh, right. yeah, civil commitment. Um but we don't have any, you know, we don't have any. As far as I, you know, I'm thinking about. It, I can't think of any parallel in the, you know, in the modern legal world in the United States for like cordoning off an entire town and and, with, and telling people they cannot come or go from that town. And right. that, they did have that in Louisiana. This is the Supreme Court upheld that. Uh, Questionable whether they just upheld it. This is—I forget the name. It's got a foreign name, and I can't remember it. But it's—it was an Italian sh- a ship that was carrying Italian immigrants uh, to right, New Orleans. Right. The name right? is slipping my mind. Know you know exactly, what I'm talking I know about? Exactly. What case yeah. You're talking about. yeah. The Supreme Court upholds that by saying, "Look, this is clearly the state has the police power, public health, safety, welfare, morals. Number one, health. Right? They can, they can do this." Um, even though it restricts movement, yeah. restricts commerce, I mean, the state
2: yeah, police ahead. power. I mean, historically, I mean, it's been considered to be very broad. Even when it interferes with interstate commerce, you know, there's a case called Austin v. Tennessee, where the state of Tennessee is restricting importation of cigarettes from North Carolina. So right away, you're thinking, oh, Tennessee, North Carolina, both big tobacco producing states, is Tennessee discriminating against an out-of-state producer of, you know, one of their local economies? And there, the court upheld this restriction based on sanitary grounds. I won't get into the details how to do with kind of, you know, was it in the original package or not. But it says, you know, the states can, to protect the public safety and welfare, can regulate, you know, um, importation of -of out-of-state products for, say, public health. Uh, As long as that's not the direct effect was to kind of uh, discriminate against out-of-state producers. And there's other cases with that example. But to come to the more modern times, if we look at during the beginning of you know, the HIV-AIDS spread in the 1980s, we see kind of how geographic spaces were regulated, particularly, you know, the gay bathhouses in yeah. New York and San Francisco where different strategies were used based upon local dynamics. So New York, this case, um, you know, St. Mark's Baths versus the city of New York, where um, the city public health said, we're going to shut down all the gay bathhouses because we feel that this is a uh, public nuisance and, yeah. you know, HIV-AIDS is spreading. Uh, through these kind of geographical locations. In San Francisco, the vote came out, I mean, the decision went out the other way. Uh, the Department of Public Health wanted to shut them down, but the public reaction, the political reaction, is much stronger against us, saying that this is discriminatory against the gay population, it violates their first amendment rights, of free association, and they had enough political power to kind of block um, that the closing of the bathhouse there in San Francisco. Actually, Randy Shilts uh, describes this in his book, later the movie and the band played on. But it, it shows you that um this kind of local power or the police power, you know, in some instances you might say, well it might make sense, right? Especially if you look back at the other examples we talked about, you know, the Juho and Wang Wai, where, you know, um if we had this kind of federal, you know, mil- police power, you know, could it be used, you know, in ways that we think are we don't want? Like, you know, saying the Japanese population or World War Two are dangerous. Let's corn them off. Let's socially isolate them because we don't want their dangerousness spreading around. You know, talk after nine eleven of having terminal cancer, Arab Americans. So I think there's there's concern with um this you know giving this police power to the federal government. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course.
0: And and you know this is the same. <clears throat> You know all these, although these early even state efforts were upheld. You know this, the court would go on to uphold the uh, um, internment of Japanese Americans in Kormatsu. So this is and I don't think that well. I was about to say I don't think that would happen today, but you know, given the right exigencies, I mean, I think we've seen. Right? I mean, that's um, that's the lesson of
1: all. That's the lesson of this crisis. It's the lesson of but, so many crises. Criti- given the right exigencies, law allows stuff to happen. And your critique that, or or what I took to be the beginning of a critique about, you know, why is this as reliant on state as opposed to national officials? And it seems to me that the argument for local knowledge and local uh, familiarity with circumstance uh, suggests that. Uh, that the you would always want l- local actors to have a large role to play. No matter where the authority is ultimately viewed as resting, you would want people who have great information about local circumstance to be heavily involved in the process.
2: Yeah, and there's also a commandeering problem. I mean, uh, where is the federal maybe, government going to get the resources to, um, you know, to enforce a quarantine you know, at the local level? They're going to have to use the you know, national guard. The national Guard, which is a, the state runs the National Guard. Uh, the governor is the director of the National Guard, is the chief exec,
1: is a commander in chief so of the, the National president Guard. can call up the, the state, state he, he federalize he, he the He can, yeah, he can. So, yeah. and maybe you're saying, you know, hey, why, why would you, why would you force that, that extreme response when you could have these other responses? It just seems to me that... And this was one thing
0: that was included in one of the post 9-11 bills, and I read about it and I have since forgotten it. That was in there for a while. That the that the National Guard could be, or the military—I forget how it phrased it—could be used somehow to enforce quarantine in the case of a bio attack. But then this was pulled out, or right? Uh, so yeah, you're you're talking about the John
2: Warner Act of 2007. Yeah, that's is, it. Yeah. Which is amazing, amazing piece of uh, of legislation. What was it called again? Uh, John Warner National Defense Authorization Act. Hmm. It was a 2007? So you know, this is after Katrina. You know, was, the government was kind of, lamp, federal government was, all governments, like s- state and local, but especially federal government was lambasted for this ineffectual response. And there was this whole concern about bird flu coming. Do you remember the ABC movie, Bird Flu, the movie? I, I have not, I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> it was, yeah, so they thought bird flu was an like stars. a critical
1: success. Yeah. It it, it was, so,
2: so the, so the, It was like Alfred Hitchcock and the bird flu mixed together. (laughs) But any event, at that time, where the bird flu it was kind of a scary thing, right? Because it's being hyped up. Uh, President Bush said, "Well, if we're going to combat bird flu, you know, one way you might consider doing it is to have the U.S. military cordon off, you know, areas where you know the epidemic had spread. So this was contemplated in 2006. In 2007, the authority was given to allow the U.S. military to enforce." You know, these quarantines. So, the situation you're talking about was contemplated. Uh, and there is little or no debate over it. This, this law passed unanimously and is sponsored by, uh, I think, Ted Kennedy and uh I forget the other sponsor, John Warner, obviously, but there's, there's someone else. But it had very strong bipartisan support. So, we have to remember the context, right? We're still post 9 11, post Katrina. Where you know there is this sense that we should give the government as much power as we can under this kind of continuous state of emergency, because government as a whole is failing
0: in all of these ways, and therefore somebody needs to do something. The thing that's on the news is the federal government, and therefore the federal government needs to do something, and
2: therefore somebody's got to pass a law. And, and who do we trust? We trust the military. Yeah, that's that's, that's
1: yeah, yeah. And, and now
2: the problem with that, I mean, it obviously violates the past Comitatus Act, right? Which does not allow for you know, essentially martial law, unless there is you know an insurrection or a civil war or, or some kind of external
0: yeah, that was what I was reading about, where it wasn't clear, and I have to admit I just don't know enough about that. But as to whether there I could suppose be exce-
1: one argument you could make is uh, for for um, trying to come up with a, a sort of put put the put the the problem of authority on the broadest and strongest bottom that it could be on, right? Is The one thing that's probably not effective in the middle of these sorts of uh, crises is to have people devoting a substantial percentage of their time arguing with each other about who's in charge. Absolutely. Because that actually doesn't help solve a problem. What solves the problem is taking a step that's effective instead of ineffective. So if you could at least get to a situation where the law is arranged such that we minimize the time that people are debating who's in charge... And we're ma- and we're therefore maximizing the time where they're using their resources and and focusing on how do we what steps do we actually take to improve unless, the
0: situation? You know, unless that debate about who's in charge is the forum in which people are actually hearing the risk policy debated. You know, if the reason people are fighting about who's in right. charge, and in fact, you know, this is the Chris Christie uh obama you know debate or i I don't know who else i haven't really to tell you the truth i haven't followed it that closely but
2: um there's a whole line of governors that follow chris christie's uh kind of lead in saying that we want to have these more uh stringent quarantine rules yeah because
0: for whatever reason i mean you know the (laughs) there's a whole cadre of people out there who just generally don't believe in government responses to systemic risk unless it's a disease (laughs) Like Ebola, in, in
1: which case they maximize, their unless response. and yeah. they
0: maximize the response. Right. In there, yeah, it's it's, it's inconceivable. It paradox, to me. But 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 let me put that to one side, and and we should also put to one side the degree to which and you raised this earlier, Joe. But um, uh, either we'll bookmark it for another show or something. But the fact that this disease is a scary disease that comes out of Africa, I don't think is uh, is irrelevant to the public response. But uh, let's bracket that as well. But this debate about uh, quarantine or not and what risks she take, uh, the, the, what risk uh, uh, the nurse who's now in Maine uh, poses, like this is the venue for right. the dissemination of a lot of information but about I don't take actual them to risk. They're
1: arguing with each other about who's in charge at all. Right. I, I, I don't think they're disputing who's in charge. I think they're reaching different conclusions about what they want to do within their own purviews. And and the system is set up such that they both have powers, they just get directed to different yeah, I, things. So right. Yeah. The national right. government is has more to do with the airports because they're you know, that the border between us and someone else has more to do with interstate travel. The governors have more I, to do I was with what's of, happening yeah. within the state. So they're not arguing about who's in charge. I, I was
0: thinking of the who's in charge in a more political sense. Like who is controlling policy here? And, right. And so and and they're having
2: a public debate about that. Yeah, so I mean, you see the CDC guidelines and kind of Obama statement about how we should address this risk, you know, which is to encourage people to volunteer and not to be too onerous. He's he's catching these are guidelines, right? So he's not saying mandating to the states. He's respecting the states' police power. Whereas you see, you know, Governor Chris Christie, Governor Virginia, Maine, Georgia, lots of other governors. Saying that no, we're going to take a strong line against this. So you do see this kind of political component that they're saying we don't trust you, Obama, to keep us safe from this kind of external threat. You know, so it kind of plays in this whole kind of national security narrative as well, which I think yeah. you're alluding to. But, uh, but <laughs> in terms of kind of just come back to that, you know, that John Warner Act, which is amazing, people don't even know about. It was quietly repealed in 2008 because yeah. it was clearly unconstitutional. But to address the the other problem that was you know came out of you know katrina who's in charge we have this kind of pandemic uh preparedness and all hazards act which tries to kind of lay out during times of these kind of big emergencies you know think pandemic you know sars or bird flu or ebola i, I don't think i'll we'll ever reach that level here hopefully or hurricane katrina event that you know who's in charge and how to take action you know, during these emergencies. So we we try to address this at a level better legally. With Ebola, it hasn't reached that. So it's really become a political football because it's easy to talk about, you know, who's in charge, who's being more responsive because it hasn't reached that level of spreading throughout society
1: like so, we have the luxury of having that absolutely debate yeah we because, can have this debate because it's like not four people or four, three people exactly with it, so. we
0: got a little bit more time to move to the other part of, of this debate i mean we've already touched on a little bit but i want to focus there a little bit more i mean putting to one side i think the the question the who's in charge question is also part of the Um, how do we get to this point question, and a lot of people have done some pretty heroic work on trying to draft these model state statutes and trying to update it, given the weird patchwork that we have, which is, again, I think, an anachronism, and and there's something interesting about the way that that we've gotten here. But once, even if you know who's in charge, and someone wants to set up a quarantine, or a cordon, or a geographic quarantine, or an in-home quarantine, like, Someone's, as I said earlier, someone's rights are are um are being tested at least, right? Someone is being restricted. Someone's liberty is being restricted uh, in like a, a degree that most of us are, like just have no familiarity with. I mean. Uh, you know, you understand that if you commit a crime, you're going to be imprisoned, and that's thought to be somehow, there's a kind of compensa- compensability there, right, that doesn't exist when you are unlucky. You already have a disease, it's already a bad thing, and now, now you're thrown into some cell. Right, and why are you some, punishing me for getting yeah, sick? Right, yeah, and maybe in your home. So, you know, and and so the instrument of law here is whatever the state statutes say, right, because they may contain least restrictive means, things, and so that gives you a challenge, and they contain procedural provisions, these provisions also are compelled by the Due Process Clause, right? And and so this is kind of what I want to get your, your thoughts on, because the Modern Due Process Clause, this actually came up when we were talking to, I think it was Michael Dorf, no, it was Steve Ladek, I think. Um, mm-hmm. This is the, the Matthews v. Eldridge test, right, which is the, the Modern Flexible Due Process Test, where you go through these four factors, basically how important is it to the government to operate efficiently, you know, how important is the right to the... Uh, um, uh, to the um private citizen, and uh, what's the risk of erroneous deprivation without the additional procedure? I guess there are three, right?
1: Three and you factors. can have a post-deprivation yeah. are there four? hearing that that can be sufficient. Oh, my mind is going. Before, right? Yeah. What is it? Aren't there four? Do I have that wrong? I think it's four, right? I don't remember. What's the fourth
0: one? I don't. Oh I don't my! Know. God. <laughs> this is embarrassing. <laughs> this is the state. Happily,
1: of, we can link to Matthews against Celbridge. Yeah, we
0: will. I, d- dear dear listeners, is that I, what Henry I Friendly apologize. called
1: some kind of hearing? Is that was was it? There's a famous uh, judge-friendly article called "quote some kind of hearing," and I think it's a reference to this cluster of ideas. Well, in any event,
0: well, what I was going to say is that um, uh, you know for, you can you can easily imagine like an individual TB event, um, like the uh, like the Andrew Speaker case or something else where there's a challenge, or this case of the nurse in in Maine, like. There will be a statutory claim that the statute says you can only quarantine me under these conditions and these conditions don't obtain and and the conditions ultimately will have some kind of standards like talk in it so a judge will have to do some weighing and look at the situation and and, and will come out with something. Uh, But you also have this due process claim which probably will proceed in a Matthews versus Eldridge kind of way where you'll weigh up the government's interest in quarantining and avoiding the really bad result. Uh, How bad is what the person is being made to suffer? Uh, How bad is that? And then you know, like, what's the risk of kind of erroneously depriving her of those uh, of of her rights uh, without kind of the additional procedure, additional things that she's asking for? Um, I can kind of see how that might work in those cases. Imagine a truly like ravaging um, uh, pandemic flu where a cordon seems like a solution. Like, are we really even using that test at that point? Because it's like in that kind of case, people are being forced like together, right? So you're increasing the risk of actually coming down with the disease even if you don't have it. You're cut off from everyone else. Maybe you have information lines, but who knows what's going to happen? Uh you know, how are how is the law and order going to be kept? And there are all kinds of problems with like restricting people to a geographic area. But the government's interest apparently just by assumption here is at its height. Like it would be really bad if this if we aren't able to stop the disease here. Like really really bad. And the individual rights are like you know, really really off the charts uh, uh deprivation right and but the risk of erroneous deprivation there are a lot of people that we know don't have it who are inside that cordoned off area how does the test even work in that situation and
2: in a way it doesn't work right during so you're addressing kind of a state of emergency which is kind yeah. of the model state emergency public health act that you know larry Gossin uh was tasked to write this is right after 9-11 and right after the anthrax attacks in dc uh, the federal government commissioned him and this, uh to, to kind of come up with this model act. Um, and it gives extraordinary powers uh, to state governors to declare public health emergency and to kind of deputize people to kind of respond to any emergency where, you know, the normal rules of say due process notice they're included within the act, but yeah. if only if they can't be done, this as well emergency, you know, you can take other procedures, you know, so you can post a notice, you know, um, that, You know, somewhere that's prominent within the town or have someone drive around, say, you know, this is now under a quarantine area. So the normal rules, we get this hearing. Yeah. It's like, to to what extent does the notice have to be? To what extent do you have to have an opportunity to be heard? All that's relaxed. And then you say, okay, well, what about the continual confinement? How long does that last? Yeah, you know, well, the standard that it can only be last, say, twenty-one days. It's it's for, um, it's four it's
0: forty days. It's in yeah. Latin. We know. <laughs> Yeah,
2: <laughs> but uh, unless you know, there's no working courthouse system. The judicial yeah. system's overwhelmed, and then you can just make a petition say, "Well, it's not feasible." So then it can go on in a sense almost indefinitely until society
1: rebuilds itself. Right? It, Isn't this? But it, uh, so here's the argument for why that is absolutely still within the Matthews against Eldridge framework is because the framework is inherently fact sensitive. So the notice that's required is the notice that makes sense under all the circumstances. And those circumstances are radically different when there is a, a disease that is literally rampaging through a population. Um, and and you need to respond to it in such a way like you would a wildfire where you need to create or a zombie fire apocalypse. break or something like that. Yeah, it, I but, think what's hard – yes. Go, you, so so the, I'm just saying that it, the, the entire thing has to be understood as – happening within a particular factual context so the w- what sounds like although i have not read this statue the what the way you're describing it it sounds like it highlights the operative facts right it highlights the kinds of facts and circumstances that should be the focus of our attention and it sounds like those are the reasonable ones to look at I mean, if i you know and maybe if i read the whole thing i would find somewhere i didn't that didn't look that way to me but But why isn't that within, it just seems like that's within the framework. The way that I look at it is, I think it's maybe it's within the framework,
0: but the framework makes almost no difference in those cases because if it's an emergency, we know what's going to happen, right? But the, what the, um, I guess the, the role that the framework is playing is if you know that you still need nominally to apply it, is it creates in whoever's charged with applying it, the judge in this case, a kind of mindfulness about the different values which are being traded off. And you know you're going to completely trade off one value, the individual, in that case. You know, this is like the, the Ayn Rand nightmare, right. right? You're going to completely trade off the individual because of the prospect of the destruction of the entire civilization, right? In the, in the most extreme case, or, you know. Uh, and... I think that so the test makes you mindful that you're doing that, and that's important because you don't always need to do that. it's It's almost like a it's almost right. like a prod to be rational. Like, and you know, we can talk another time about this, but you know, it can one get thing,
1: you to think about a way that you could handle it that wouldn't require that much sacrifice on the part of those people. exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: And, and one of the things that courts do, I think, is um, one of one of the best functions of courts is to encourage other people to be rational, like uh, prodding other people towards rationality and thinking of new solutions. And and so that test is there to say, you know, be sure. Um, but it's not actually, I think, in the case that I described, doing any analytical work. I don't think there's actually any weighing going on other than the fact that you're observing that this is a potentially hugely destructive, uh, 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 you know, disease. Right. But yeah. what's going on is, like, we are not familiar with that. Again, you know, we I, I think if you've been alive when epidemics ravaged somewhat regularly, and there were lots and lots of, you know... Uh, People killed in each epidemic, and every family had stories about people killed in these ways. You were probably much more comfortable. And I don't. This is a matter of like you know history and sociology and stuff. So maybe other people know. Uh, my, my my guess is you would be much more comfortable with with thinking that you could still live a life characterized by liberty, despite being subject to some rather draconian by modern standards cordoning laws and 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 uh, quarantine laws.
2: Yeah, I think you have to look at at once again context matters. Uh, So, in the SARS outbreak in 2003, which is really scary, SARS had a very high case fatality rate, um, and it spread airborne, easy to get through casual contact. Uh, You look at the response and say, you know, Toronto and Canada was outbreak in China. Uh, So, when there's, you know, when SARS came to China, you know, there was concern around the population there. You know, there's large um, internal migration in China where people from the rural areas go to the big cities like Beijing, Shanghai. A lot of them left. Because they were afraid that there was going to be a military yeah, cordon. That. Yeah, And so um, they were afraid that what? They are afraid that the the Chinese government was going to have military cordon on where mo- a lot of these kind of migrants lived, these mm. kind of poor people he came in from the rural hinterland. So they left. So they left, which is the last thing you want. If they, were, <laughs> they carried SARS to right? every SARS corner of the every, country. Yeah, yeah. Quarter, yeah. quarter, country.
1: Um, and now you don't know where they are. And they don't know where and, they yeah.
2: are, and you can't treat them. So that was one big concern, that there would be overly draconian response. Um, you know, in Canada, they had uh, voluntary quarantine, I believe, with thirty thousand people, which is a significant amount a of people. Of people. Yeah. You know, in the City of Toronto, but they made sure that it was a habitable quarantine. Right, so people were provided with food. Uh, they were provided with wage assistance. You know, uh, mortgage rent assistance. Because think if you're an hourly worker and you're barely making your rent payments or you're worried about paying your bills. You might break quarantine saying, "I don't feel sick. I'm going to go to yeah. b- yeah. my work." So those those things that you can do to kind of and make And they were and they were rich enough to do it. And they're rich enough to do it. Right. Um, I mean, I mean Canada, right? Yeah, Canada. And so and that made sense. So, um, they had high levels of of compliance there uh with this kind of voluntary quarantine. And There's only a handful of cases where people actively broke the quarantine where they had to take more uh coercive measures to make sure they didn't leave. But, uh, you know, going back to the the case in Maine, you know, whether or not, you know, you said that the legal standards might constrain people from doing something irrational. Maybe, because I, I think under the current, you know, um, legal guidelines, we it's arguable that, you know, she still might be a threat. Right. Because you're still within the 21 days of incubation period that the governor come back, to say that, you know, we want to put you under you know, mandatory quarantine because you've exhibited that you will not respect the voluntary quarantine. And
0: by the, she went on the bike ride today. By the time we post yeah. this, she may be under an imposed quarantine and, and she yeah. may, there may be a lawsuit. I saw, you know, so today she did that. I understand there are two state troopers stationed outside of her house who followed her when she went on the bike ride. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like... Uh, but
1: that is, the, that seems to me to be the, 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 the framework is being applied, right? She'll go to court. Uh, She can challenge that Uh, a judicial officer will have to make a determination after making some findings. That's the system working correctly. I mean, that sounds like how it's supposed to operate. I mean, that's like saying she can cause the she can cause the executive official to be held accountable for applying the the operative standard based on the but the facts that are established.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a system. It's the judicial part of the system working correctly it may not be the executive working correctly
1: fair enough yeah, I, mean, I mean it's he, like he, saying right, like you know cuz the executive could could have figured this out and could have done it in a way if if she right, ultimately challenges it and wins that's an indication that perhaps the executive could have reached that conclusion on its own right and that there wouldn't have been the need for a judicial proceeding i'm not suggesting to the contrary all i'm saying is because people can disagree with what the executive says right she has a lot of knowledge she has reached her own conclusion of course she's self interested the governor has a different conclusion. He's got his concerns. Uh, there is a judicial officer to take care of that dispute. Yeah, I don't, it's. I, I honestly, thing, I, I mean, I, I I'm
0: just, I, I'm honestly just too ignorant to to venture a solid opinion in this case. I, I am not like reflexively behind the idea that she should be going out in public. But I think that's my intuition is that's probably the better idea because that's where kind of the cost benefit calculus kind of pushes me here um it's not risk-free and and i'm trying to imagine if i were her would i make a big deal out of the fact that i don't feel sick and i'm going out in public knowing that i'm still within the incubation period the incubation period is a is a weird word for it as we talked about earlier she may be in this period where her viral loads are really low and she's about to you know i'd be what what if she does spike a fever right but Again, I don't know like what percentage, uh, how many people are coming back. That's one piece of data. I just have no right. idea how many people are coming back having volunteered over there. So far, only one person coming back uh, has uh, has uh, come down with Ebola.
1: Out of hundreds, right?
0: I, that's the that's Isn't the it's the denominator
1: like right no, now. Yeah,
2: well, there's um there's there's more there's there's a case of uh, the one missionary doctor. In Atlanta, another one is treated in Nebraska. Yeah, no, but they were they were brought
0: back. they were brought the, back. You're so, all right. So, the, oh, my question saying? is: people who come, uh, how many people are going overseas? Who come back and coming asymptomatic
2: back? and then develop Ebola no, here?
0: Or, or no, just what's the denominator? How many people are coming back from uh, from uh, situations where they have contact with people with Ebola in Africa? How many people are coming back to after the United that? States? Yes, unless you know that, then the significance of the one guy who went to the bowling alley uh, and, and appears to be have done everything right. Uh, under the guidelines, uh, it's hard to know. Like, is that a risk that we want to take? Because I think again, that, that goes qu- in the risk
1: calculation. That question
0: is a, is is part of the risk calculation. It's not a medical judgment. It's a right. it's a policy judgment. Because is,
1: is he one of ten? Is he one of fifty? Is he one of five thousand? We know it's not that. And but, that, that brings um, up. Well, a I no- don't know. I mean, it, yeah. it could
2: be one of five. Is, could it be one of five thousand? <laughs> I, I don't think, so. think it's that many.
1: <laughs> but it brings up another interesting uh,
2: issue. Right. Uh, the split between you know President Obama's you know saying urging kind of caution, like, let's not get over-hyped about the risk of Ebola. We need people to go over there, because that, that's right. That's how we're going to stop Absolutely, the spread yeah. of globalization. It's incentivize people to volunteer medical workers to stop it, versus, you know, the U.S. military and the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying any military is going over in West Africa now, and once they come back, mandatory to go a quarantine. I saw that, too. Even yeah. though That was announced yesterday. Even Yeah, even though the uh, U.S. military is not involved in any direct patient care. So you can argue that they are lower risk. I would argue that they're not based on other calculus. But I want to see what your your intuition is there—that they are uh, just military service people who serve in that area. Military, yes. so, yeah, because we send over military troops to help with kind of logistical support, but they're not directly involved in any kind of patient care. The way these volunteer uh, nurses and doctors are, which President Biden says we should kind of you know not be so. How uh, many how many
0: troops are there? I mean, because you don't you don't control every troop and. Um, so you might worry like what, you don't know what they're doing all I the think time. the
1: plan ultimately is it's a, it's going to be a few thousand people. Yeah. I, I do I don't think that's true right now, but I don't. I think maybe I four to 5,000. 5, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yesterday the chair of the joint chiefs, uh, general Dempsey told the secretary Hagel that they want to have a 21 day quarantine upon return. Uh, and that's, and that the people in the services, their families are asking for that. Service members think it's a good idea. That's what they want to do, so that's what they're going to do. Right, so here, here's I have a suggestion,
0: and it's not the one about renaming the bowling alley. Okay, which I I have that suggestion. I think that would be it's in poor taste, though, isn't it? It is. Okay,
2: I want to hear uh, that.
1: I, I just think <laughs> that's I in the after dark. No, we'll I, do I, have okay. the after dark.
0: I just think the bowling alley guy ought to own it. Yeah, you're always going to be the Ebola bowling alley. You, you know, which yeah. tells so you change pretty,
1: the name to the bowling alley to Ebola. Ebola and oh, just spell it with a W with I two dashes. It. With, with yeah
0: yeah, yeah. I, I I got that yeah. like with an old like <laughs> like with an old like Holiday Inn style sign yeah, yeah. you know that like so, right. with neon it's like own it you yeah. know and
2: that's very Williamsburg hipster but, yeah yes.
0: and it, and and so long as the tragedy doesn't spin out of control right that would then, be then it's it it would in be poor taste the, if yeah. it if it spins out of, if then, he dies
2: then, you can't do that oh absolutely not. I'm gonna go on the record right now and say it's in poor taste as of this moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, that's why I hesitate because you know the guy seems like a fantastic guy I I am digressing but
0: here's the thing. If we want people to do this, here's, here's what the federal government can do. Establish some of the most awesome resorts ever for three-week vacations for people who come back from serving in these areas. Free drinks. Maybe it's by the beach. Done. Done. Don't think, even call it quarantine. I think
2: that's a great idea.
0: May, maybe we can rename quarantine like the Ebola bowling alley to something yeah. awesome. I mean, but in all seriousness, no, that's, that's a little bit of a flippant suggestion. Although only partially, maybe that kind of thing ought to be available. Like you ought to, you know, it, people have quarantined in, in in nice places before, but there there ought to be some. Um, uh, there there doesn't there seems to be a gap between the yeah. say you quarantine and then all the other things we need to do to make your life work under that. Yeah, I think right?
2: actually there's a strong logic to what you're suggesting because mm-hmm. um, if you look at you know Casey Hickok's strong reaction against you know New Jersey it's that it's like I went overseas to help protect not only people in West Africa but also my own country and I come back or things I get is to put in this tent you know without a working toilet no access to you know, the outside world you know this is outrageous whereas you know if you want people to take the sacrifice say okay we recognize that there still is some risk it might be very low risk That you might have this disease within you and present harm to third parties, we're going to make your quarantine habitable, right? We're going to make it humane. It might not be the spot, but it it wouldn't be the conditions you just placed in, which is, you know, I think pretty appalling. Yeah, 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 I I agree. I mean, they they need the equivalent of the high five
1: when they come back. And you pay, you know, you'd have to pay. So, so I think one issue is with the employer that you're leaving. Let's say you want to go and volunteer there, right? Yeah, you're leaving your employer now is going to have. Three additional weeks when you're not back at work, right? Yeah. So, and you might be gone for three or four weeks. Make so grants available for that. If you think? right, so you're gonna they 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 need to receive some some money that helps them deal with their staffing issues. You need to be uh, and cert, uh, Look, I think anyone who does this volunteering and come back and comes back and says, "I want to be isolated from other people," and I, here's the difficulty I have achieving that. Right. I think you do everything you can to help that person stay isolated for 21 days. Because
0: whatever you do is a lot cheaper than hiring somebody as an employee of the US government to go over there and do it.
1: Right. Among other things. Among, you're right. I mean, right, but it's right. like, it, <laughs> that's the beginning of the list of the reasons. Right. Why I mean, here. if you
0: just had to go out and pay people to do that, like, these right. are people who do out of the goodness of their heart and they're the best people you can get to. I mean, they're just, it's, it's, right. they, they need our help. And yeah. She, right.
1: But the reason she presents a different issue, right, is because she doesn't want to be isolated for 21 days because she doesn't think it's warranted. She has other things to do with her life, like get back to her job. And, and et cetera, et cetera, right? But the people who who do want to be isolated, I think, yeah, you do what you can to make so build a res- build a I think
0: I think we yeah. should quit while you, while you guys have made my somewhat ridiculous suggestion at it least somewhat, at least somewhat palatable yeah. by yeah. Through, through through nice amendments. But it's all downhill. From is here there though, anything right? else we want to say? Is, I would. Well, there's yeah, boom. I've, here we go. Here we go. Well, lay it down, Doctor <laughs> Doctor Khan. Doctor Khan's going to lay it down. Uh, In fact, we should every show. If we do ever do segments, we're gonna have you on every episode, Fuzzle, and we're and there's gonna be, you know, Doctor Khan's corner. Con's oh. corner. <laughs> <laughs> I got a corner. I'll take Con's a corner. corner. You know, it'll be like we'll play a little bit of music, maybe like music box style music, and then you'll yes. go. So here's Khan's corner
2: Con's for this corner. episode. Well, you know, trolling on the internet is always a dangerous thing, but you know, you, you see, kind of on <laughs> that. That sounds like the beginning of a corner, actually, doesn't yes, it? Does, it does. It does. But you know, you. you this is on. Iowa, this is on the Washington Times. I don't know. You shouldn't go in the Washington Times. Well, I guess you can. You know, knowledge is power. But there, there was this kind of interesting kind of opinion take on. You know, uh, you know, Casey Hickox thinks he's too good for treatment that the military, you know, is undergoing for this mandatory quarantine. You know, even though they were not exposed to like uh, directly Ebola patients, but they got me thinking. It's like why? Why is the military so gung ho about this? And they they're. I don't think they're giving the real reason they're concerned. Mm. Uh, if you look at public health studies of you know foreign uh, troops deployed in foreign areas, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, think, East Asia, you, do you know where I'm going with this? Is the word
1: prostitute going to come up? Yes.
2: Um, not only sex workers and prostitutes, but also interaction with, with locals um, outside that arrangement. There's a high degree of transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. Um, you know, there's one study involving UN uh, Dutch troops, which is like between 40 and 50 percent. Which is similar to kind of uh, studies involving U.S. troops and uh, you know peacekeeping action. So I think that's animating their concern, even though they're Probably. not directly is, involved. Is there
0: any evidence about e- e- Ebola in the in the non uh, symptomatic period being sexually transmitted? That's
2: a great follow up question. So oh, thank,
0: thank you. I'm glad we're I'm glad we're doing Con's Corner. <laughs> yeah.
2: So e- Ebola has been detected uh, in the semen. Uh, for I think approximately three months post uh, res- resolution of symptoms. Whoa, whoa, whoa! After yes, is it transmissible?
0: That Wait, is it are we breaking
2: news here? The whether Ebola is a sexually transmitted disease is not enough is known because the patient population okay. size have been very small. Because you know, once people are sick, you, you're not like they're really not just, feeling right? it. They're not feeling it. They're not feeling. feeling, it. It. <laughs> they're, not feeling they're, they're not really in the mood. It's not so good for the sexy time. <laughs> no. Yeah, but. If you look yeah. at, like I said, if you go back to that Leroy study where people who are asymptomatic at evidence of Ebola or people recovered, uh, where they still have some evidence of, say, the virus surviving, it opens the possibility, right? Because also you to look at previous Ebola outbreaks, it's been in very isolated regions, you know, it hadn't been a major population right. centers. It has jumped to population centers where we're operating in a dark region. I think the military just is using abundance of caution for. Probably good reason, but they're not being totally transparent.
0: We just about haven't it. observed enough transmission, like in the wild, exactly. to know what it'll be like in an urban center. And I, mean, yeah. I think
1: another important difference is um, I, I haven't heard anything to suggest that the armed uh, forces members who are going over there are are all going over there as a volunteer matter, right? I mean, it's not like they're only sending people who agreed to go on that mission. If people are ordered to go. Correct. So that's another reason why when they return, if they I mean, if if they didn't have a hand in deciding to go, if they feel like it's better for them and their families for them to be provided with that twenty one day period when they return, that seems to me to be a reasonable accommodation. Right. I mean, yeah. You
2: can say there's a lesser expectation when you sign up for military service. You know, you're under their control of the military authorities. Right. Yeah. But what I'm suggesting is and then that was Obama's response that, you know, people who volunteer for medical service, we want to encourage them to do that, whereas people in the military know what the deal is. You know, yeah. you have to respect, you know, your orders. But I'm suggesting is there's another hidden reason which is not being acknowledged. And there's, there's probably a good reason not to acknowledge it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well that's, that's <laughs> but the you know, cons corner uh, uh, <laughs> Where we
0: tell the truth. <laughs> On this show we acknowledge it, right? This we, is the show where things it. get acknowledged. We acknowledge things. We're keeping things real. The spin off of the show is <laughs> gonna be called the acknowledgement. <laughs> <laughs> we spend our time acknowledging things, and that's before we start the Just Joe Show. Yeah, you, I'm sure you'll acknowledge things on that show too. I will. Do you hear the dinner back there in the background? I do. I can smell it. it
2: smells good. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. If,
0: I don't know if our listeners can hear it. If, they, if they've leave, heard pans and everything, but <laughs> but listeners, I I I, you know, I'm sorry about all of the Ebola talk, and um, uh, at least it
1: wasn't federal courts.
0: That's. <laughs> I'm sure we will get comments about the relative right. You know, from Nicholas, some people.
1: Nicholas has to be happier yeah yeah i I suppose i mean given the blood that was shooting out of his eyes during his listening session to the prior episodes no no are are we gonna get comments on this episode probably probably
0: i mean you know it's it's terrible (laughs) it's terrible and um yeah no we should just we should just turn it it off it's the the one talking (laughs) yeah this is this is the problem with the late night episodes the late night episodes (laughs) thank you puzzle
1: oh thank you for inviting me are
0: you ending the show are you cutting me off
1: yeah we're done
0: Mm.
2: Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. Boom. In the can.
0: <laughs> now I'm still recording. No. Damn it, let's go on. Another right half on. hour. Another half hour. Con's Corner too. Oh, Joe's no. Corner. In fact, we can have Just Joe as a segment. I like Uh-oh. Just, Just Joe. Joe. It
2: sounds <laughs> like that should
1: be on Just
2: Joe. cable TV somewhere. Yeah, I know. No. I've sure always. Sure, it is.
1: Believe me, there's some guy named Joe out there who's currently doing that show. I have no idea. You can doubt do
2: Evening Joe. You're like the polar opposite of Joe Scarborough, his Morning Joe. my my, My you should (laughs) you
0: could listen to morning
2: joe and then go on a rant my my
0: my son will listen to this podcast if we made just joe especially if it was if it started with like i I think i would need to i think i would need to be on it joe just as a prompt we wouldn't include my part we'd cut it out right but i would say something to get you going and then it would just be a big joe rant a big joe miller rant. and
1: there are things you say that definitely cause that to happen oh absolutely
0: Just show, no sugar. It's one of my favorite pastas. (laughs)